This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abram Nanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. We're the show all about you and your rights. Our host is usually Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Today, we are joined by returning guest, Professor Hans Sinha. Hi, Hans. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Liz. Thank you for having me on. And I feel like today we, we might as well be broadcasting from Montana. I'm looking out the windows, and we still have snow and ice on the ground, at least up here in here in Oxford, Mississippi. Well, I'm sorry. I, I came in Jackson. I just wore a sweater and didn't even have a jacket <laughs> out. It, uh, it, it's funny. When you have a, a long state, uh, you can be iced in on one part and at the beach at the other. But yeah. uh, uh, today we're excited to have a, one of your co-professors joining us. Yes, I think today um, we're lucky we have Professor Calvin Peeler from um, who teaches here at Ole Miss. And uh, I think Calvin, you taught many different courses, including property law, family law, and part of that is community property, which is our, our topic for today. Yes, um, I uh, taught primarily in California. Speaking of the weather, I'm not used to this Oxford <laughs> weather at all. Uh, but I've taught uh, most often community property law as a sort of a part of family law and contracts. But I've also taught property and tours. So a, a number of courses uh, over the course of my career. Okay. Yeah, and I'm sure it's um, 80 degrees and sunny in California, uh, as it always is. Uh, so. I, I hope not. <laughs> so, sunny. so, 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 we're going to focus on community law, community property, which is a subset of property law, but it really comes into play how people, when they join in, in marriage and, and a dissolution of marriage and also possibly upon death of one of the members of the marriage, how property can they be divided? And, and just in general, it's a different way of doing it in the states that have community property, which I think is the minority of states, whereas the majority of states have a different way of doing it, equitable distribution. Can, can you just give us a general overview of that? That's correct. Uh, in the United States of the 50 states, there are only nine community property states. And if you were to be looking at a map of the United States and to start with Louisiana at the very southern sort of mid uh, country and go west along the border. So Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and going up the West Coast, skipping over Oregon, but Washington State, Idaho, and Wisconsin are the community property states and the only community property states in the country. All other states have a different marital property regime, as you refer to, that's called common law, uh, equitable property states. And so they're very different in, in many respects. Um, if you like, I can sort of describe a little of the differences, but uh, I'll let you ask the questions. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah, fascinating. In terms of where the community property states are in America, and I take it that's based upon the history of going back in law, the common law being European, British, and the civil law being uh, the continental European, France and 
at which which is dominated in Louisiana and Spain, which also has some effects in terms of of those states. You know, you know, southwest part of of, of the states from from Mexico. Um, so historically, the, the common law is based on British, but the civil law does that go back to the Napoleonic Code and, and the Roman law, the Code of Hammurabi, is is that a direct line in terms of the yes. history? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating. So uh, Louisiana would then be the most purest civil law with community property, so to speak? Yes, uh, and I'm sure you know well. I, I understand you're from Louisiana. The, uh, grew up there illegally, yes. Was a, <laughs> was a French territory at one point, so uh, it adopted and retained much of the uh, French civil law even today, uh, not only in property or community property law, but the, you have the civil code that still exists in Louisiana. So well, that I, history sort of still prevails uh, largely there. I would make a guess uh, Wisconsin that had a lot of, I guess French in trappers in influence. If you if you think maybe that Wisconsin, you threw that one in that that blew my mind. That's a little sort of shocking because it's sort of uh, a little geographically away from the others. And I don't really know, to be honest with you, whether or not it's from the uh, immigration uh, during the time. You know, we do know that you know prior to the Civil War, the French had the territories to the west right. of the colonies, and of course, the French-Indian War, which was, you know, uh, also here in North America, where the British were moving west, fighting the French to expand the colonial territories. So it could be part of that initial history of the French colonies being, you know, just west of the Ohio Valley. But I really don't know the answer to that question. It's an interesting question I should probably research. Why is Wisconsin included with all the other states? (laughs) Let me set up a general um, uh, theme here. Tell me if that's right, and we can go from there. As a whole, the community property thinking, historically, as I understand it, was that it was designed to protect – the less powerful in the union, the marriage, typically the wife, to ensure that she could not be disinherited, and uh, if there was a divorce, would remain kept keep some property that came in during the, the union, and also she could not disinherit children completely. Is that still true? And how does that differ then from the equal division? And I'm going to take it from there in terms of what's different from Mississippi, for example, in civil law, com, common law, uh, Louisiana. Well, the idea that it protects sort of the typically the woman who used to not be the uh, earning spouse. Right. If we look back to the traditional family, it was the man who worked outside the home and the woman who did not. But that's changed enormously. But it does protect both spouses in this regard. Once in a community property state, you get married. From that point forward, there is a presumption in the law. And a presumption means that if you're married, the law presumes that everything you earn either spouse, of course, it used to be the man, but now it's both spouses, and everything you acquire is presumed to be community property, which means every item is one half each spouse's. So during the course of the marriage, both spouses have equal management control over everything that's community property. And again, that's anything that's acquired or earned during marriage. Now, it's a rebuttable presumption. That is, if you have a divorce or the marriage terminates otherwise, a spouse can argue against that presumption by proving, for example, that a 
personal property or real estate was actually acquired prior to marriage. So anything acquired prior to marriage would be separate property. But if it's owned during marriage, again, the presumption is it's community property. One of the complicated areas of community property law is often, as we know today, as fewer people are getting married and for a while we've had a trend of marriages happening later when people have already started careers, uh, when people have already begun to have property and assets, and even there's a significant statistical number of people who are getting married a second time after they've already had families, children, and after they've already had uh, careers and, and began to acquire assets. And so then when you go into the second marriage, uh, that creates a particular issue sometimes. Let me give you a specific example. Whether you're married before your current marriage or you were not, if you buy a house, one of probably the most significant purchases most of us will make in our lifetimes, uh, but you buy it uh, through a mortgage before marriage. Well, at that point, it's your separate property. But once you get married in a community property state, if you're still paying for the marriage from your earnings, your earnings are community property. So any item can be a combination of separate property and community property. And so to the extent that it acquires some value, the equity might be equally owned in part by both spouses because it was paid for in part during marriage and some of the equity might be separate property. So there's a pro rata formula for determining uh, how you divide that piece of property. So some of it might be separate property going entirely to the party who acquired it before marriage, but separate property money. And part of it would be equally owned by both spouses because during the marriage, money was used to continue pay down, paying down the mortgage. And that would be true for any item, a car or any asset that you initially acquired before marriage, but then continued to pay for with community property funds during marriage. So it can be very complicated. Yeah. Um, and so the presumption is that if you own it during marriage, very likely you acquired it during marriage, but you can rebut that. Another thing that's very true of community property is, is that both spouses have equal management control. That historically wasn't always true in families. The husband, the traditional bread winner, earner, uh, would have management control over the finances, as well as only the husband could acquire credit and and even write a check. Uh, and today now, in, and so it's sort of as our society has evolved and women's rights have certainly uh, been protected, uh, both spouses. And that means that neither spouse can uh, alienate or sell or in any way uh, do anything with community property asset without the other spouse's consent. And my one last example, and this is sort of a very broad discussion here. Um, say for example, in a community property state, during the marriage, the husband buys a truck, but during marriage, and he, and he uh, either pays for it in full or as we often do when we buy uh, vehicles, he pays a down payment and then pays monthly payments. Well, that would be a community property asset. Let's say that he puts it entirely in his name alone as he registers with the state. It would still be community property owned half by himself and half by his wife. That would not be true in a common law equitable property state. In a common law equity property state, if the husband in that same example purchased a truck during the marriage 
from his earnings. It would be his separate property. And in a common law equitable property jurisdiction, he would only have an interest in his spouse if he were to record title in his spouse's name. So there are some significant differences in how property ultimately is owned by the spouses between the two regimes. I'll stop there and let you uh, you ask any follow-up question. Well, I'm finding this so like. uh, interesting because, you know, as Americans, we think, oh, we're, we're Americans, and wherever you go, it's all the same, but it's not. And so I think this is very good for our Mississippians to know that uh, we are the equity property state. But if you just go to the other side of the river, uh, then that's it's a whole whole different ball game, And that's what we're going to be touching on today. This is in legal terms. Now, not yeah. everybody has a chance to listen to our show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website in legal terms dot dot org. Our host is Usually, Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. I am joined today by Professor Hans Sinha. So now, what court handles the distribution of property in a divorce? Well, chancery courts have jurisdiction over disputes and matters involving equity, domestic matters including adoptions, custody disputes and divorces, guardianships, sanity hearings, wills and challenges to constitutionality of state laws. Land records are filed in chancery court. So we've talked about domestic law a few times here on In Legal Terms. Most recently was August 22nd of 2023. Our guest was Chancery Court Judge Troy Odom, and we talked about child support. I'll have the link to that podcast and to our Mississippi court system on this show's information. Today, we're talking about uh, the distribution of property in Mississippi and also seeing how it compares to other parts of the country with our guest, a visiting professor, Cal Peeler. Cal, let me jump in. I think you, you, know, you explained the community property concepts, but we are in Mississippi an equitable distribution, I guess it's called property. And yes. There's so many. Can you touch upon a little bit of differences? But then also, um, when people move from a community property to a non-community, such as Mississippi, what are the things that people should be aware of? And you know, we're a very mobile state, and it happens all the time. Yes, yes. Before I address that, um, let me just sort of define what it means to say equitable distribution as opposed to community property distribution. As I, I, I attempted to say before, in a community property state, all assets acquired during marriage and income are equally owned by both spouses. So in my prior example of a truck that was purchased in a community property state, even if it's the husband or the wife who purchases it and pays for it entirely from their income earned during marriage, even if that spouse puts and registers title only in his or her name, it is still a community property asset owned equally by both spouses. So if you get to the point of marital dissolution, both spouses have an interest in that truck. In an equitable property state, that 
would not be true if under the same facts, a husband bought a truck during marriage with his earnings, it would be considered his property alone, his separate property, unless, of course, he put title also in his wife's name, which by the title would presumably be owned equally or at least in part by the wife. Now, when we talk about distribution of property at the termination of marriage, the community property that's owned jointly means that if it's divorce or even if it's a death, each spouse has an equal interest in that piece of property. Now, some things, of course, you can divide, <laughs> but you can't divide a table, for example. And so courts will find a way to kind of equalize the sort of financial division of the property, even if you can't sort of split something in two. In an equitable property jurisdiction, the goal of the court is to be fair. And to be fair includes considering all kinds of variables, the income uh, of the respective spouses, their ability to uh, earn income after the divorce, uh, perhaps even in some jurisdictions that don't have um, no-fault divorce, whether or not there's a fault might play into the fairness calculation. But there, there are a list of criteria that a court will go through. And so the fairness may not at all end up being financially an equal division. It's an equitable in terms of how to fairly look at who should get what based upon the information about the spouses. So it's a very different distribution system between community property and, and uh, common property. Now, to your question about us being a very mobile society and people often moving for various reasons, for uh, employment reasons or change of season, or even as we get older, sometimes we want to go from the cold to the warm. Uh, if you move from a community property state where you've been married in that state, and you've acquired assets under the community property regime so that those assets, again, are community property assets and owned equally by both spouses. You then move with those assets to a common law equitable property jurisdiction, of which, of course, most of the country is. Most common law jurisdictions will recognize the community property nature of that property that you bring with you from the community property state. In other words, that property, not the property you begin to acquire once you've moved to the common law state, will still retain its community property uh, characterization, meaning it's equally owned. If the reverse happens, if you move from a common law equitable property state like Mississippi to California, there's a certainly different uh, presumption. Once you move to California from Mississippi, which means you've moved from a common law jurisdiction to community property jurisdiction, and then the marriage ends, either by death or divorce. A California court will, absent some other reason, treat the property that you've acquired in the common law marriage state as community property. But it would be called quasi-community property, which means the court creates the fiction as if you acquired it in that community property state. So there's a very different effect from moving from a community property regime to a common law regime or from a common law regime to a community property regime. Now, all of that said, uh, one of the things that probably should be noted is that 
even in community property states, as well as common law jurisdictions, the parties can take control over deciding how they want to distribute their property. There's nothing that precludes two married people from saying, I don't want the state to decide how to distribute our property at divorce or upon the death of either one of us. And I want to decide, we want to decide together how to do that. And there are two ways that can be done. Again, if we look at the fact that a lot of marriages statistically today are second marriages where people have acquired property, often you have prenuptial agreements. That is, prior to marriage in a community property state and in most common law uh, states, and this is governed by state statutes, if you comply with the regulations to create a contractual agreement that deviates from what the law will presume to be your interest in the property during marriage and at divorce, by creating a contract prior to marriage, we call that a prenup, and that will uh, trump any of the state law by the legislature if it's proven to be an effective contractual agreement. You can also do the same thing once the marriage has begun. Uh, that is, if after marriage, the parties decide that they want to do something different with what the state sets forth to be the ownership interest in the property and how that ultimately would affect what happens at divorce or death, they can create a post-marriage agreement. You know, in California, that post-marriage agreement is called a transmutation, which means you transmute either property that's community property to the separate property of one of the spouses or vice versa. You can transmute community property uh, or separate property to community property. So there are various things you can do to take charge to avoid what the individual state, whether it's community property or common law property state, um, results to be by entering into an agreement. The only thing that would be key, of course, no matter what state you're in, is to look at the particular statute that governs how to do that effectively. Uh, for example, for a prenuptial agreement to be effective, and I'll just mention a couple of requirements, it has to be in writing and it has to be signed by both spouses. And there's a whole history of those agreements where the state legislature has put on some precautionary uh, things to make sure no one's taking advantage of anybody. Uh, that is, how quickly can be done. There used to be prenuptial agreements, for example, uh, where uh, unfortunately, or at least the, the point of the fact is, the ones that I, I used to teach, the husband would present, the husband who you know either was uh, already uh, earning a lot of money or on a track to earn a lot of money would present a prenuptial agreement to a woman right before the marriage. <laughs> and uh, and so the state legislature ultimately has stepped in to require a certain amount of time before the opportunity for both spouses to consult with an attorney. So there's some protective procedural safeguards to make sure uh, that it's not coercive, uh, that it's done fairly. But again, the idea is that under neither the community property nor the common law regimes, are you forced to do what the state ultimately would characterize your property you can decide yourself. Interesting. But are there any sense, um, if community property initially was designed to protect what was historically was a weaker part of the, the union, historically the women who wasn't working, and, and traditionally said you cannot take all the property away from a woman, say upon 
dissolution of marriage or death. Are there any you know, guidelines, anything that you cannot do in a prenuptial? Can, can they agree that everything will go here or upon death that a woman gets nothing? Um, uh, no, uh, the, the, the one prominent safeguard uh, that would make a prenuptial agreement unenforceable that we see or have seen most often is if the contract itself gives one of the parties an incentive to divorce. Usually that is interpreted to be a financial incentive. For example, uh, if the prenuptial agreement said, in the case of divorce, uh, the husband, who traditionally had you know the assets and the earning power, promises to pay the woman uh, the woman a million dollars. <laughs> Uh, and the woman is of meager means when she goes into the marriage. Well, one argument might be at the term of the marriage, say that the husband continues to earn lots of money and he's worth much more than a million dollars, <laughs> is that uh, it incentivized her to divorce if she needed a million dollars. And so that would be a prenuptial agreement that classically would be unenforceable if by its terms there seems to be a financial reason to actually terminate the marriage. And part of the underlying policy for that was to protect marriages. Marriage, of course, is uh, uh, held by all courts to be uh, important, and we don't want to incentivize people to divorce. And so apart from that, Hans, I don't know that there is a lot you can do if you do, if you follow all the formalities. or I should say there's a lot you can't do <laughs> without all the formalities as long as you uh, uh, agree to it and you're not coerced and ultimately in line with most contract uh, theory, you're not coerced, it's not duress, uh, any of the defenses to forming a contract don't exist and uh, you're free to do whatever you want to do. I am finding this all so interesting and so different from TV, <laughs> which is where unfortunately I get a lot of my uh, legal advice. But now I know that you can't sign, you can't be presented with the prenuptial agreement right before you walk down the aisle. If that That's not that's not good. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is usually our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and today I'm joined by Professor Hans Sinha of Old Miss Law School. I hope that you will subscribe to our podcast. Hey, you can also find all the MPB Think Radio recordings on the website mpbonline.org slash radio. So if you want to know what's going on with our Mississippi legislature, we're in session now. If you want to know what's being discussed, watch some of the committee meetings. And there's a there's an argument going on about that between the House and the Senate. Or if you want to see what their calendar is, you can just head on over to their website. That's legislature.ms.gov. You can see the cute little headshot of uh, your representative, your senator. You can see what's on the calendar. On the you can watch that. some of the um, YouTube Uh, Committee meetings, all sorts of interesting information. See what laws have been passed, what's on the agenda. Uh, Just go on over to legislature.ms.gov. 
Gov. We are talking today about the laws in Mississippi and comparing them to some other states, kind of specifically about uh, property division with our guest, Ole Miss Visiting Professor Calvin Peeler. And Cal, we are so glad that uh, you're in Mississippi. How long do we get to keep you? Do you Are you going back to California in, in May or August or next December? I actually have relocated to North Carolina, so I will go back to North Carolina, but uh, I've been invited to spend another year at Ole Miss, so I'm contemplating that choice. All right. Well, we hope this weather hasn't swayed you. Uh, we'll see after this interview. I don't, I don't think uh, North Carolina's uh, any any better. So uh, we we'll have to maybe maybe Hans can uh, show you some of the Mississippi barbecue places because I don't know. Is North Carolina yes. is that that white vinegar barbecue? What kind of kind of I don't know. Judge a place by know. their we barbecue. We've been there long enough to really know. I'm sorry, <laughs> Carolina Gold. Oh, Carolina Gold is yeah, what Abram, our uh, our uh, uh, board engineer, says. Okay, well, we'll have to we'll have to make sure that uh, you know all about the good Mississippi food. But today we're talking about a division of property and how our laws in Mississippi are a little bit different from other states. And Kat, let, let me ask a question. We talked about the division of property in marriage or in marriage dissolution in terms of community property to eight, nine states that have that and the common law, the remainder of states that have that equitable division. How does the equitable division concept, the community property concept upon the death of someone in, in a union? Can, can a person who in community property, for example, disinherit someone or their limits to that? And, and is that the same for the equitable uh, property? Uh, I'm glad you raised that point. Uh, first of all, when I teach the class, uh, sort of a tongue in cheek, I say to my students that every marriage will end. No matter how happily you are and how many years you are together, it's going to either be by divorce or death. And so to some extent, uh, although in a marriage, as we think about marriage today, although it's not historically what the original purpose of marriage was. We think about sort of a loving, caring relationship, and we tend to sort of put aside all of the more technical, legal, uh, financial issues that sort of come to the fore, of course, during marriage. And so what's critical to understand when you talk about the death of one spouse is partly what we've already talked about. To the extent that in the community property jurisdictions, we understand whether or not an item acquired during marriage or income acquired during marriage is community property, although it's a rebuttable presumption, what can you do with that if one of the spouses dies? Well, if you've already, and it's not controversial to determine that it's a community property asset, which of course means that for every asset it's owned equally, then the decedent spouse, we need to know whether or not he or she died in test state or with the will. And if the person died with the will, then the person has the right for every community property asset to convey to whomever he or she wishes his or her one half interest. The remaining one half interest, of course, is the surviving spouses and that cannot be conveyed. Of course, that presents practical challenges sometimes depending on what the asset is. In an equitable property state, as we've said before, as the 
property classification may largely depend on who purchased it during the marriage. It may depend on title. Then again, we need to look to see what, for each state, no matter which kind of regime, what are the intestate laws about how property, if a spouse who dies without a will, is to be distributed to the heirs. And then there might be some variations of that uh, from state to state, but typically a surviving spouse will get sort of a lion's share of their children or their parents of the decedent. So we would need to look at that, but certainly to the extent that we're talking about in a community property state, without a will, the intestate succession defining who gets what, what percentage, can only be what that person owned in a community property state. The only thing you own is your separate property and one half of the community property. In a common law marital state where you have equitable distribution, of course, you would certainly go to the things that you can identify as the separate property of the owning spouse. And since there is no presumption of equal ownership, you'd have to look to see sort of uh, whether or not there is title. Title becomes very critical. Uh, and some of the title, of course, this is where community property dovetails with property law. Uh, if spouses, whether you're in a community property jurisdiction or a common law jurisdiction, did purchase a property during marriage and they decide to create title, uh, let's keep it simple by saying that they put it in a very common title, uh, joint tenancy. If you create a joint tenancy upon death, what that means is that the sh share of the decedent automatically goes to the surviving joint tenant or joint tenants. Uh, the quality of the joint tenancy is that there's a right of survivorship. And one of the characteristics of joint tenancy is that you own equally just by that title. So if there are two joint tenants, the husband and wife, then each has a 50% interest in the property that's been titled joint tenancy. If there are three people, say it's the husband and wife and a child has been put on the title of a house or an asset, then each owns a third interest, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you have two spouses that have an asset as joint tenants and one of the spouses dies, the decedent spouse cannot convey that one-half interest to anybody because it automatically goes to the surviving spouse. And that would be true in a common law jurisdiction as well. So part of the question in a death scenario is, what is the character of the property during marriage? And if that's not disputed, then the decedent either through a will can convey whatever he or she owns, even if it's only one-half, or some percentage of the property ownership, or if there is not a will, there is in every state an intestate succession statute that determines who and what percentage of the surviving heirs gets the property. Uh, and again, it's the characterization that the court will give to that piece of property that will determine how that's distributed. Under community property, it's always going to be one half, unless it's uh, again, a joint tenancy title, which means you cannot uh, convey it to anybody but the surviving joint tenant. I'm loving, so, I'm loving I'm learning about this because uh, 
uh, as you know, someone who's married, someone who's moved around the country, uh, myself, and who has family members around the country. And just because I love learning stuff like this, I'm so glad that uh, we're, we're touching all this. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms with us. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. Also, it's available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Our host is usually Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. I'm joined today by Professor Hans Sinha. So at 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So... I am very proud to announce that the next season of the MPB News Program at Issue will be starting Friday, February 9th at 6.30 p.m. only on MPB Think Radio. Well, I'm not going to say only on MPB Think Radio because there will be additional content on our YouTube channel. So Michael Guidry from MPB News will be joined by Republican Austin Barber and Democrat Brandon Jones for weekly recaps and roundtable discussions about current issues. Will Stribling will be at the state capitol as MPB News's legislative reporter. Okay, so today we have our guest, Cal Peeler, and he's been speaking with us and letting us know about how some of our laws in Mississippi are different from community property states. And we do have a caller. Let's go to Batesville and find out what's up with Diana. Diana, thank you so much for being part of our show today. What's your comment or question? My question is, if I own property, it was in my name, and I got married, and we built a house on the property. We both worked, and we both paid for the house, and he dies. But the property is still in my name. It, it's never been changed. The deed never got changed from my name into both of our names. So what happens to it at that when he when he died, what? should happen. I get it or I have to split it <laughs> with the kids. Cal, do you have a comment on that for Diana? Well, well, I, I think uh, Diana would like to uh, would best consult with a Mississippi lawyer if that's where she lives because, of course, that's the person who can help her understand exactly how Mississippi would uh, handle that situation. I can speak about it a little bit abstractly from California perspective. And I think I mentioned it briefly, and it's fairly complex earlier. Uh, from what I understand, if she purchased the property prior to marriage, if she were in California, uh, that purchase presumably would be with her separate property money, and therefore, at that point, and up to marriage, it would be her separate property. And that may have acquired equity prior to marriage, and so any equity, any value beyond an existing mortgage would be hers and hers alone. But in California, of course, this is not speaking to Mississippi, upon the marriage, if then a mortgage is continued, that is, you continue to pay down the principal with earnings of either spouse in California, again, different from Mississippi, then those earnings would be community property jointly owned. So from that point forward in time, any equity that accrues to the property 
becomes community property. And so for the years of marriage, which would be important to calculate in California, again, I don't know how that would be done in Mississippi, uh, you would have to prorate how much equity is acquired from the payment with community property money versus how much equity was acquired prior to the marriage with the separate property down payment. And so there would be in California pro rata formula in that particular situation at the death or a divorce, that property would be a mixture of separate property and community property prorated based upon how much of each separate property, community property contributed to the existing equity. Uh, and uh, I, again, I think a, a Mississippi lawyer would be best to describe that situation, but it might be very different here. Hans, do you have any uh, anything that you could chime in for uh, Batesville, Mississippi? No, but I, I think that us being an equitable, equitable common law state, title will make a big difference, big, big deciding factor in terms of what the title of property is. So, uh, exactly. But I agree with exactly. Cal. I, I think the best thing to do – this is not a complicated question um, from, from – Sandra from baseball. I think a Mississippi lawyer could very easily look at those facts and say very quickly, this is what's going to happen, uh, especially if the house was in your your title, if the house was in, in, in your name, in the caller's name. Do you title But again, houses? best thing to go talk to or do you just go, title, go talk to a Mississippi lawyer. Do you title houses or do you just title land, Hans? There's usually a deed and a title, and either one can raise a presumption in a community property state of a gift if it were initially separate property, or you would go by what the title means. Uh, you know, there are various kinds of title of property which have different meanings. Uh, I mentioned before joint tenancy, which of course means that you are creating a title that indicates to the public that you own it jointly, no matter how many joint tenants there are. There are other types of title, for example, tenants in common. Tenants in common, unlike joint tenancy, doesn't have to be an equal ownership. It can be a function of how much either person or spouses has given to the purchase of the property. And then, of course, there are many other types of title, which, of course, is sort of more specifically to a property discussion. Uh, But I I agree with Hans uh, that, and I think we said this before, uh, in a generally speaking, in a common law jurisdiction where you have equitable distribution, title does indicate that it belongs separately to the person. But under these circumstances, again, uh, I agree that it's best to consult with a Mississippi lawyer to see if that would be true, given the facts uh, set forth by your caller. Thanks, Diana. We're glad that you've called in, and we hope that you uh, get some resolution to your issue. Uh, and that's why we always love to have a uh, a state planner on our show from time to time to remind folks uh, to make sure that they have their uh, estates in order because you never know. Uh, Cal, we and, and Liz, have, can I please jump go in ahead? Have your time. We've but got I, one I think, minute. Uh, I think uh, the caller's question was was so so fascinating in the sense that how 
the same things will be handled differently depending what state and jurisdiction you are. And that's the beauty of America, that we have many different states you know, made up of, of the states of, of uh, 50 states. And then some fall in this eight, nine states to have the community property based upon the civil law going back to Rome and, and all those things. And the other ones based upon the British model, common law. Uh, and, and we tend not to think about that as citizens of the United States, but we really are citizens of each state. And there's a lot of consequences. And the caller's question is a perfect example of that you know because it's mississippi she was across the border of louisiana be handled very differently and and in a way that's the beauty of the law and i think the beauty of our country and if you don't like the laws you either need to move or you need to register and vote and uh, get people voted into office who like your laws cal and hans cal thank you so much we appreciate you joining us today thank you very much My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hans, we are so glad that you stepped up. Professor Gershon's got some big shoes to fill, but we appreciate you uh, stepping in for him today. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Always a pleasure to be here. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. Our team is consists of board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny, and Charles Arnold was our call screener. So for Professor Richard Gerson, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.